On this episode of the Peter Panda Podcast, we're talking all things waterfowl with my friend Shane Garner of SEMO Outfitters. Now let me just start by admitting that I'm no duck hunter. In fact, I can count on both my hands the number of ducks and geese I've ever shot. Talking with Shane about his life's passion was so interesting to me. You'll have to excuse some of my ignorant or maybe just elementary level questions, but this was all new to me. What I found was the parallels between us as passionate sportsmen were countless. From raising hunting dogs, guiding hunters, respecting a resource, and protecting its future, Shane is as an authentic of a duck hunter as I've ever met. So listen up and pull them waders on. We're going to the Mississippi Flyway with Mr. Shane Garner. Headset. Well, I don't know how much time you spend in airplanes. <laughs> Not a whole lot. <laughs> Just commercially. <laughs> Just commercially? Yeah, don't make you put on a headset. Or not yet, anyway. Sometimes they they ask you to put a mask on, though. That's right. Those days are over. Hopefully. Mr. Shane, we just wrapped up an awesome elk hunt together. That's right. It's early September, and uh, this is the first elk hunt of the year for me, and we had a good time. Yeah, it was awesome. Great weather. Bulls cooperated. You've done an awesome job. I was able to kill my first bull. Yeah, that was incredible to be a part of, man. Um, we went and grinded it out. And, you know, the bulls weren't talking a lot, typical early season stuff. But we were patient and kind of stayed in the game. And a lot of those bulls, every bull basically that committed to the calling came in silently. Yeah, that's right. Four in one day, that was super exciting. Just ninja'd us, just coming in completely silent. And once we kind of realized that what's, that's what was going on, we got more patient and it became more productive. That's right. That well, was the learning curve. Yeah, it was. It was fun, man. And you, you shot yourself a nice bull, and we got that thing turned around at the butcher in 24 hours. It's in the freezer right now, and you're flying home with a bunch of good meat tomorrow morning. Yeah, yeah, hopefully my bag doesn't fall open in the St. Louis airport and a bunch of meat fall out on the ground or I might get attacked in that you, <laughs> in that place. <laughs> you uh, bought some nice Gorilla tape, but I properly lost it there this afternoon. Yeah, I don't think it would be a problem in the Bozeman airport. Everybody's been giving us thumbs up driving through town with the elk <laughs> in the back of the truck. Isn't that nice? Yeah. That was no surprise to me. I knew as soon as we hit the, uh, hit the interstate and started driving with your bull in the back, I was, I don't think I said anything, but I knew we'd get some honks or some thumbs up. <laughs> and we definitely, we definitely did in the 15 minutes we were on the highway. That's right. Yeah, good, good elk hunting. Looking forward to more of September. Um, but I want to talk to you about something that I know little to nothing about, and you have kind of built your life on, which is waterfowl hunting. Yeah. So where are you, where are you from? I'm from southeast Missouri, little bitty town called Advance. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's only about 1300 people in my hometown and born and raised right there in advance right there and you're multi-generation there yep multi-generation farmer um how long how deep do you know your lineage four for sure four i'm the fourth generation and kids are the fifth yep kids are the fifth and they're gonna follow up both my boys want to farm so they do yeah are they showing up uh next week to <laughs> harvest <laughs> yeah they're both in college yeah, okay. they would they would be there if they didn't have school but my oldest gus is in lexington kentucky so he's five and a half hours away and yeah the next uh 
Jed. He's in Olin, Illinois, at a Shawnee uh, Community College. So he's he's a little closer. He's about 80 miles from home. So he'll come home on days that he doesn't have baseball or or uh, school and and help. So. So what do you farm? Corn, beans, or soybeans, that is, and rice and wheat. Yeah, and spread kind of evenly across those, or do you have one thing in particular you focus on? No, I'm more heavily on corn because that's also uh, works in my waterfowl waterfowl, uh, business as well. Yeah, tell me about that. Uh, So you're, you're a farmer some days and you're a waterfowl outfitter some days so what's your year look like yeah it's pretty busy uh say first of april through hopefully by the end of october that's my farming season so planning a start in april with corn and and rice and then soybeans to follow and then we'll harvest wheat in june and plant soybeans back behind the wheat as soon as we get it cut and then harvest will start actually just soon as i get home from this trip so first part of september we'll be picking corn and hopefully grow right through harvest and then my waterfowl season starts november 4th and what what is your waterfowl season i mean you're tell me what you're doing right i run out of uh, missouri south missouri which i'm in the middle zone and the southern zone and then also hunt i have a farm in northeast arkansas so we hunt arkansas as well Mm -hmm. so my season will start november 4th and it pretty much runs straight through till January 31st. I'll have some kind of season in one of the zones or Arkansas or Missouri that, that'll be in pretty much that entire time. And you, uh, so you're outfitting duck hunts. I, I'm very familiar with guiding and outfitting, uh, but not with the duck world. So what does that look like? You've got, uh, you've got a lodge. I do have a lodge. And you can put up to how many different hunters, how many hunters can you host at one time in that lodge? I can host 24. Wow. I I try to run 20 as my magic number. That's so, where things are operating most efficient, most uh, productive? Exactly. That way I can run out the door every morning with five groups of hunters with four uh, hunters in a group, and everybody has their own guide and we disperse everybody goes and hunts different locations and hopefully kills a limit and back to the lodge but if we don't kill a limit we try to end our hunts by noon okay and then that way we give the afternoon give the ducks a rest and don't uh do you do, an, ev- do, you do an evening hunt or do you just scout not very not Kinda very often back off them yeah we try to let them have it and it takes us all afternoon to scout and prepare for the next day but if for some reason you know, we have a bust of a hunt that morning. Then we try to put something together for the afternoon just to keep everybody. That daily happy. limit comes and goes every 24 hours. Yeah, that's right. And to be to do it every day, you know, 80, 80 days in a row, that would be, you know, astronomical. It's hunting. No matter how good your spot is, there's going to be a day or two or three during the season that birds just don't move. Ain't that the truth? So let's back up from that, though. So right. you born you born into uh, a long heritage and tradition of farming in Missouri. Um, you grew up hunting. I did. My dad was a big deer hunter and uh, upland game guy. There was a lot of quail in our part of the world. In the what flavor quail? For sure, Bob White quail. Bob Whites. 
So my dad drug me along. We quail hunted about every day of season and deer hunted the deer season back then. He he was only a rifle hunter. He did not bow hunt. Okay. So deer season was a big tradition. It was nine days long back then. Your gun season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For rifle. And uh, I was just totally engrossed with it. And uh, I had a first cousin that was a big bow hunter. So he got me into bow hunting when I was about nine years old. A little bit older than you? Yeah, he was 14 or 15 years older than me. Okay. So he was gracious enough, being a college-age kid, to drag a nine-year-old out hunting with him. God bless him. Yeah, no kidding. The world needs more mentors. That's right. So I got into bow hunting and also loved to waterfowl hunt back then, even though my dad didn't uh, waterfowl hunt. Yeah, what was your introduction to it? There was a swamp about two miles down the road from my house, so I would walk down there, and it would just be full of ducks, so they just grabbed my attention. And what was your, was your first uh, duck hunt, like a jump shoot at that swamp? or? Yeah, pretty much. I'd yeah. just lay on the levee, and hopefully they swam up to me, or they flew too close to me, and I'd shoot them. My grandma actually bought my first decoys for me. She bought me... Uh, I had three mallard decoys and one uh, goose decoy that she bought at a garage sale. No kidding. Yeah, so that was my first That was your spread. spread. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I hope those that. are still somewhere in the trailer. <laughs> I, I used them so much they just dilapidated. And just they just dissolved. Apart. Yeah. They're part of the world's microplastics now. That's right. They are. Or maybe they were wood. My, I have a sister that's 12 years older than me, and uh, at the time it was her boyfriend who they – of course, later got married. He's my brother-in-law now, but he would take me hunting as duck hunting. Duck hunting back then. So I had a few guys that dragged me around, but I mainly just figured it out myself. So yeah, that's pretty cool that to kind of discover a passion on your own, like your own vein of the outdoors that kind of you weren't forced into by your father, your family hunting traditions. You kind of found waterfowl on your own and pursued it. That's right. What I so I'm I'm not a duck hunter. I think I, we've discussed this a lot in the last week. I think I can count on two hands the amount of ducks I've killed in my life. Right. Um, and it's mostly just because I'm so busy. Uh, you can you can't boil the ocean. You got to kind of pick your pick your projects, and I picked a lot of them around big game hunting, backpack hunting, and then ultimately lion hunting, which consumes my entire life in and out of that season uh with the dogs and stuff but we shared a lot of interest in the working dog aspect and uh that's what really gets my my gears ticking for lion hunting is watching those dogs work and i know it's a big part of that for you it is it is i have uh black labs that i like to hunt with which is the proper lab right that's right that's <laughs> yeah right. the pure it's there's a very purist approach to labs and uh proper waterfowl guys they seem to be very biased to the black lab and i asked you why and what was your answer i think it's just been from years of uh of breeding and everybody just thinks that the black lab's more dominant and a better um you know field trial type dog but uh I, th I think it's just been more emphasis put on them over the years of all their human selection yeah. almost made the black lab the the waterfowl dog that it's evolved into yeah i believe so and when did you get your first duck dog uh i was probably uh about 14 
probably. I had um, one of my sister's friends had bought a chocolate lab and thought it was great to have a puppy, but after it was about eight months old, they decided that the puppy was more than... Funny how that works. Yeah, more than they wanted to take care of. Hmm. So I was dying to have a duck dog, so they was they gave it to me, and it worked out, and I had had him for several years. And What was that dog's name? Ben. Ben. Big Ben. Proper big male black lab? Chocolate. Cho- he was chocolate. Actually a chocolate, yeah. yeah. But he was rowdy and rambunctious and easy to see why they couldn't couldn't uh, get along with him <laughs> they handed him off yeah to he was pretty hard-headed but he and i got along good and that was my first dog and i've had several since yeah and it's a big part of your life yeah they just don't last long enough it's the it's the achilles heel of having hunting dogs any dog you know they become your your friend and your family and worst part of owning them is the expiration date on them yeah that's right yeah i hate it but uh focus on the good times and take them hunting you had uh you had told me a story about it one of your late dogs recently uh who was the best the best hunting dog you ever had was it a girl clover clover yeah little small female black lab she was the run of the litter i had her father and one of my hunting buddies had the mother of the litter so i told him that i would just take whichever one was left over out of the litter, you know, for, I guess, stud fee, if you will. So that's how I ended up with her. She was probably a third of the size of any of the other puppies. Oh, she was. So what's she weighing at? When at her heaviest, the biggest time, she's like 48 pounds. Oh, she was not a big dog. But most of her life, she was probably in her 30-pound range, 38, 39-pound range. She was Mm. small, but she was fast as a bullet and huge heart. Um, she was scared to death of everything. It was a puppy. Really? Shotguns? Not really guns, but people, people any loud commotion, hmm. anything. She was ready to hide, sent her to a trainer. She would not fetch, did not want to fetch. This wasn't looking good. No, <laughs> not at all. The trainer I sent her to was a lady in Miami, Oklahoma. I thought she'd be softer with her, might be able to get something out of her since she was so skittish and just sure nervous wreck, right? So I sent her to her. She has her for probably two or three months, went through basic obedience and tried to go through force fetch, and it was a struggle because she did not want to do it, did not want to pick up bumpers, nothing. The lady calls me and tells me that she doesn't think that she's going to make a dog. Oh, no. She's just going to have to be a family pet. And I was busy working, so I couldn't go get her. Farming or guiding? Farming yeah. this time. So I told her I'd make it out to Oklahoma as quick as I could to get her, and we'd just draw a line in the sand and move on. And it was a, probably about a week later, Cindy Leonard was the trainer's name. She called me back and said that she had found something that was working with Clover. Um, her trainer that she had helping her had left the bird coop open (laughs) so all of her clipped wing pigeons got out in the yard and clover wanted to catch them so that was her first introduction to live birds and her only retrieving that she would do she would go get a live bird and bring it back to cindy just (laughs) as fast as she could just clearing the yard of birds so cindy figured out that she could throw a clipped wing pigeon and she'd fetch it no problem 
Yeah, she was just ready for the advanced steps, maybe. Yeah. But <laughs> I she, don't know. She never would fetch a tennis ball or a dummy out in the yard, never wanted to play fetch. But she, if you she take her hunting, messing around with the fake stuff. No, she was all business. And uh, she was a good one. She was figured every hand signals, stop on a whistle, anything you wanted to do, she figured it all out on her own, just hunting. You had, you had uh, spoke to you kind of loosely referenced some statistics where you're like, if I, if I mark a bird or if I knock a, a duck out of the sky and it goes down in the swamp and I mark it and tell the dog, there's a, a you said something of the likes, like 90% or plus or higher chance that that dog is going to go, a good dog is going to go find it and bring it back to you. That's right. Which and blows my mind. And she would. We, I lost very few birds during the whole season with her. Very few. We wouldn't lose. If I knew that it went down, we probably wouldn't lose one or two birds a week hmm. of hunting every day. Man, they changed the The dogs really, really up your uh, recovery rate. Oh, yeah. They are the best conservation tool in waterfowl hunting just because you don't have the cripples lost and a dog can find things that even though you want to argue with the dog, more than likely the dog's right on where the bird is. Gosh, so man, ain't that the truth? You just let them be, they find them. But you told me that clover uh, had a special strength in being able to leave the water to find a bird. Tell me what that's about. Yeah, the little bodies of water that we hunt, little flooded fields or whatever, have levees around the majority of them all the way around it, right? So if that duck is crippled out in the water, most of the, most dogs would stay to that one area that the duck was crippled in and just hunt 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 and whether they find it or not that's that's their main focus well clover had figured out the game enough that if that duck ever went to the bank if it ever got on dry land she would find it no matter how far it went and that and that was a different most dogs wouldn't do that no no they wouldn't ever think about going to the bank and and searching up and down the bank from sniffing out an exit route right where the birds come out and they would they would do it often you know they'd go to the bank to get away from whatever's chasing them and then take off running across dry land out through whatever you know the grass or yeah. woods or whatever the conditions were and uh they just couldn't get away from her she'd she'd find them there'd be times she'd be gone for 20 minutes and my hunters would be you know ask me is like is your dog coming back she'd leave us you're We're like just let her go yeah, yeah you trusted yeah, her yeah and i would and Finally, she'd come back, and almost every time she'd have the duck, and it just amazed everybody that ever had the chance to hunt with her. Yeah, that's impressive. I've hunted with uh, impressive hunting dogs and not impressive hunting dogs, and the good ones are something to write home about. That That's for sure. They can make a good hunt even better. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. How many dogs do you have today? I have three of them today. You do? Yeah. And they they work full time with you at the lodge, yeah. And you you cast them out with different groups in the morning, and I I hunt them. My dogs stay with me, so was that just, right? I just rest them, you know. They Does the average <clears throat> guide have his own dog. Yeah, yeah. All my Is that guys, how that works? Yeah, all my guys have their own dogs. Interesting. They're all good. And uh, if you if you take a lab, they are so smart. And if you would hunt that dog every day and kill birds over it every day, it will figure it out on its own. I believe faster than you can train one. Yeah. Especially if it's set it up for success, give it opportunity and let the evolutionary gears click into place. That's right. 
Yeah, I say the same thing about about these lion hounds. Or people are like, how you train a dog to chase lion? I'm like, I don't. I train a dog to not do a couple things. You know, encourage good behavior and discipline bad behavior. Uh, but they they seem to come pre-programmed to an extent, and I know that's true with these waterfowl dogs as well. That's right. Um, backing up to you got into waterfowl hunting outside of hunting with your dad you had a, a mentor your brother-in-law who kind of or he was getting into bow hunting but was he the waterfowl mentor as well yes that's right my brother-in-law took me waterfowl hunting what was the turn for you where you said I, I think I'd like to do this professionally I think I'd like to maybe try to make a make a business out of this or, or try outfitting and guiding right I knew I wanted to farm and that's what I'd geared myself toward I, I did not want to go to college i could not stand being in school <laughs> yeah i'd stare out the window thinking of all the things i could be hunting instead of sitting in school <laughs> so when i graduated high school i was straight into farming and i of course knew that that's the business that i wanted to be in so i wanted to buy my own farm so i bought my own farm when i was 23 years old and it just which is quite impressive you know, no matter what you do with it, buying a farm at 23 is pretty yeah. wild. Yeah, we have a small town bank in town, and they were crazy enough to let me buy a farm with no money down. They were like, we know your grandparents, yeah. we know your family. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they were crazier than I was to loan me the money to buy my first farm and to get me going. I love it. Yeah. and uh, So how big is that farm? That farm is 450 acres. Oh, that's that's a proper piece of dirt. Yeah. And it had waterfowl hunting potential, and uh, I I wanted to fix it up. I wanted it to be a waterfowl farm, right? And farm, I mean, was the primary thing you were going to farm it and try this, maybe try waterfowl hustle on the side? Right, because there was no commercial guiding operations in my area at Mm. the time. There was southern Illinois was drying up from its heyday of being the goose capital of the world, and that was – you know, 45 miles, you had to cross the Mississippi River to get into southern Illinois. Hmm. And that's where the bulk of the commercial stuff was. The lot, the destination waterfowl hunting. That's right. So I wanted it on my side of the river, and nobody <sighs> done it. And so I thought that it was a good avenue to get into to help make a few bucks to make that tough farm payment that the bank was expecting. yeah they didn't forget about it no so uh yeah so right did it uh yeah tell me what you did with the land in the in the early years we we had the tractors scoops come in build levees levied off you know parts of the farm as i went it took me probably i don't know five years or so before i had the whole farm encompassed to where it would all be flooded and uh, started out that, that's a very foreign idea to me what does that mean you're gonna flood your farm i feel like if your farm just floods because a damn beaver swam in somewhere and, and backed something up but right. y'all do this very popular practice for waterfowl habitat y'all intentionally flood some of your ag fields yeah yeah a lot of mine we do now or i do now but we put in pipes through the levees that had water control structures, you know, on the inside of the levee. So you just drop boards in the structure. I could, I can picture this, yeah. To hold back the water. And then I have irrigation wells. In Missouri, you do not have pumping 
permits. So the water there is mine. You know, in other states, you have to monitor uh, the flow of water, how much you pump, and you're only allowed. And maybe to share pump. it with your neighbor. Yeah, yeah. But not in Missouri. We ha- we are very fortunate. We have probably the largest aquifer under us than in the continental United States. Well. Wow. Yeah, so built the levees, put the water structures in, and every year I would, you know, turn the pumps on and pump it full for. So talk me through like a, a year of the life of that field, like we, you're farming it, and flooding it, and then farming it again. Talk, explain that to me, the, the a year cycle. Right. So the farming season, like I said earlier, will start in say first of April, right? Mm-hmm. I'll work the ground, I'll plant the corn fertilize all that kind of good stuff and then it the crop grows throughout the year and all my ground is irrigated so you know if dry weather comes along i can irrigate my corn and raise really good corn harvest the corn in september and then as soon as the corn's harvest what i like to do is very lightly work the corn stalks just to get them in contact with the soil so what, is it, what does that mean work them to take like a disc or you know chop them up yep i use a diamond tool a lot that's just more or less a chain with disc blades on it and it just kind of lays them over really Mm -hmm. gets them in contact with the soil so they will rot and then uh, pump water on them first october and then be ready to shoot ducks in first of november through january how deep is this field getting with water uh they're all precision graded so like on the low end of the field it'd be 18 to 20 inches deep and then it'd run to the top end of the field to where it just runs to nothing you it's know, pretty shallow shallow water yeah but standing water yes and uh when you knock the the corn stalks down after harvest it would uh what benefit was that creating to that that, that way, habitat. in the spring, the water will de- the water in the mud will decompose your corn stalks. Hmm. So in the spring, after that staying flooded, because I will leave it flooded until the first of March, okay. last of February, first of March. Even though waterfowl season's out, when the ducks are returning from the south, going home, that that is important to have a destination. Yeah, your spot still there. You want your spot to be uh, a. a pit stop for them exactly. on both ways of the migration exactly they're being imprinted on my farm and mm-hmm. they're not being harassed or shot at or nothing on their return migration you know so it just makes for a better year the next year those hmm. those ducks remember that absolutely so when i let the water out the last february first of march the reason why i worked those corn stalks down was so they would rot so there's not a lot of ground uh, vegetation to hold moisture. So my ground will dry back out faster. So I can go back to planting in April and hmm. do the whole process over again. And a corn behind corn rotation, because I plant corn every year for the ducks. And I have fields I've had corn planted in for probably 15 to 18 years in oh, a row. Wow. And that's super tough because it puts a lot of organic matter in the ground and it makes your soil wet anyway and then if i'm flooding it for five months four months whatever yeah i would think that that would cause problems from an agricultural standpoint like we drown out a bunch of stuff or we washed away a bunch of nutrients or i don't know like it seems it's it's very interesting to me that you can both farm it 
flood it, hunt it, farm it again. And it's this like symbiotic relationship. Yeah, it's it's quite the process and it takes quite a bit of management to be able to, to do it all. And it's been a learning curve for, I've been doing it for 22 years and and uh, it's, I learn something new every year. Trying this. Well, if you ain't, if you're not learning, you're probably not paying attention anymore. That's right. Um, we spoke a lot on this past week of elk hunting about ducks and about North American flyways, which really fascinate me. And you're you're pretty well versed in this stuff. So, what flyway do you live in? I'm in the Mississippi flyway. And how many flyways? Talk me through the North American flyways. How many are there? And uh, what what does that exactly? What is a flyway? Right. The we just start on the east, and that's the Atlantic Flyway, and it's from the coast to, say, probably central Tennessee, Kentucky, eastern Ohio, you know, the, kind of that line, if you will. And then it turns into uh, the Mississippi Flyway, which is where I'm at, over to the western side of Missouri, Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, um, Arkansas border, that line, if you will. And then the next one over is the Central Flyway, and it's from there over to the Rocky Mountains. And then past that is the Pacific Flyway. And each flyway has its own regulations and uh, bag limits. and federal. So this is an interesting element to waterfowl hunting is we're hunting these birds in individual states, but they're also federally managed because these birds are interstate traveling daily at That's some right. Point. And we, you know, our federal agencies work along with Mexico, as well as Canada. Oh wow! To try to, you know, get a gauge on how many hunters each um, flyway has in it, and what kind of kill rate that they're having to <clears throat> help with setting bag limits each year, because each year is different, and season dates and all that kind of good stuff and it also goes along with the hatch each year so they're carefully monitored for to shut it down you know if they yeah. start getting over hunted or somebody's having a bad hatch or or how, whatever it may be you had told me about how uh some of these advancements and technologies and like modern waterfowl research has really you know pulled the curtain back on a lot of the mysteries behind these migrations that's right uh, what what are what were some of those myths or mysteries busted? What are some of the more revolutionary things we're finding out about ducks in North America today? I know until you know they used to just do leg bands, which showed a tremendous amount of information then. But everybody still thought like a particular duck, if he was raised in North Dakota or or um, Saskatchewan, that that duck pretty much flew straight north or south that was his migration they did not vary very far east or west hmm. and then today's world comes along and we have gps transmitters that they're putting on these ducks mm -hmm. and they're figuring out that ducks are migrating east and west as much as they are north and south so it becomes more of a water related migration than as far as saying that they just you know travel straight south so explain that you're talking about like dr drought water and you know a, a wet year or a drought year these birds are going to improvise Eat, right and look look for water as they travel right a migrating mallard might be flying 
12, 14,000 feet high. And that is nuts. And when he's up there that high, you know, he's looking south, but it looks dry, but it, he might look west, and they just follow the water. So he might go east or he might go west, and and that dictates more than the north or south. So it's more habitat for them than – It almost makes me – I mean, obviously the birds are going north and south uh, seasonally because it's becoming winter up north and they can survive in a southern climate in the winter months. You know, right. this is North America – or northern hemisphere we're talking about. But um, it almost makes me question, like, well, are the flyways <laughs> – an imaginary man-made thing but i i don't think they are i think they're very much uh travel corridors that we've identified but when that information comes out and kind of like well they go east and west and north and south like it almost it almost blows the lid off this stuff makes me question if yeah you think you think you know a lot until you don't that's right mother nature is gonna prove prove you wrong every time you think you're one step ahead of of the curve and know what what's going on then she can throw you another curveball just like has how quick they can migrate and yeah tell me about that i mean all what's an average or what, like when it's hot in a bird and it's like man these birds are migrating right they they can jump up and move 300 miles easy in a day that's not it, it used to be you know thought that a mallard would hopscotch his way down the migration trail uh, for an average of 60 miles a day. But they found with GPS transmitters, they might wake up in North Dakota and be in southeast Missouri in a single day. They catch the right air currents, and they're gone. Uh, I told you about a speckled belly goose, a, a white-fronted goose that was in the Northwest Territory, left on one day in October, Flew 23 straight hours, landed in central Arkansas, and the average speed was 90 mile an hour. Tailwind. Yeah. So they can do some phenomenal things. That is, it's nuts to me that uh, that's the average. So at, at points, birds going a lot faster than that. Maybe at other points, slower. But a goose traveling at 10,000 feet, yeah. you know, give or take, going 90 miles per hour. That yeah. is wild. Yeah. Flying as fast as a nobody would ever assume that. No one would ever guess no, that. No. Yeah, we're talking super cub speeds. Yeah. 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 Nobody, you know, years ago thought that that would happen. That they could, you know, make that journey that fast or that far. And uh, technology today is, you know, opened a lot of people's eyes. What's the What's the state of the union? I mean, you've been at the waterfowl game in in your home flyway for a long time. Is the hunting uh better or worse than uh historically av historic averages or would you say uh where where is that i think it's better and i think this is the heyday you know you hear people say well the good old days well i think we're living the good old days and there's tremendous amount of waterfowl and the people that's involved you know there's so much more habitat conservation efforts i believe so i know that you hear that all oh, the breeding grounds are being being drained and you know the dakotas the prairie pothole region losing so much habitat but maybe we are but there's also habitat being developed you know all throughout the flyway just for them just for them so i wouldn't know what the actual number is acre for acre but i just know the birds that i see come through my neighborhood and it seems like there's more and more every year 
and that's that's a good reason to get into duck hunting yeah <laughs> i mean it, that, that motivate that makes me want to go duck hunting and i'm not a duck hunter it is a popular sport and they say that uh you know duck stamp sales are down but I don't know how because you see a lot of young kids more getting more. involved in Duck Dynasty and the boy that had to have kind of the uh, duck, elevated yeah. the the game, huh? It did. It it brought out you know hunters and groves in my opinion because I'd been hunting in Oklahoma with some friends for 20 years and when I first started hunting out there, we did not see another duck hunter. We'd go into the gas stations in the morning to get coffee, and the people would ask us if we was going deer hunting because we had on camo. And no, we're going duck hunting. And they just couldn't believe it. You, you shoot them things? You, you actually <laughs> hunt them things? Yeah. And and now today, you go out there to hunt in that same area, and there's duck hunters everywhere. There's people trying to you know make little impoundments and make habitat for them where none of that was there 20 thought, years ago. It, it's such a funny uh, conundrum we have. As hunt- I don't care what you're hunting. Uh, you want more people involved in hunting and in your avenue of hunting because that's going to create more opportunity in the future and be good all around. Uh, but you just don't want them in your spot, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's always the, the yeah. double-edged sword of it. That's right. And it, probably one of the, another biggest thing that um, – I should, I don't know really how to put it other than steering waterfowl hunters and it, I mean it's all hunting is social media, mm. you know and well duck Di- I mean duck dynasty is its own form was its own form of social media I mean it's, it's right it's it, content it's digital content that got out to the masses and I personally don't think social media is probably good for the sport. One thing that it is changing is you know old young people alike it doesn't really matter in age but it's all about the piles you know you see social media or the gripping grins with yeah yeah. you see a 25 guy party hunting and stacking 150 birds in a pitcher and everybody don't get that glory shot it's a you didn't do it yeah that's right that's right that's what everybody thinks that they have to do and if they don't do that then they're not successful when it's I couldn't agree about. with you more. I, I try to, you know, if that is the reality of it. I try to maybe change the course of that norm by, you know, in, in my world, lion world, every time I post a photo of us holding up a mountain lion, I try to post 20 photos of dogs working. Yeah, yeah. And be like, man, if, if you don't understand that this is the majority, this is it, the, the hunt, this is the hunt. That's right. It's not about the pile of ducks at the end or the, killing the biggest tom at the end that's uh, right it's all about camaraderie and just being outdoors and hunting more than it is killing a pile of whatever animals yeah and i think a lot of people are losing focus of that because they're so so wrapped around their social media or what some other group of hunters are going to think of them if they don't you know post a 50 bird pile every day then then it's you know, not satisfactory to them when which they're missing. Which is not, yeah, which is which is not the case. Shouldn't no. be the case. No, for sure. Not. I said it earlier today. I said I've, Shane hunts for all the right reasons. He and you do. You hunt for the, you know, the the adventures along the way, the camaraderie of camp, uh, the interactions with all of nature, not just the elk, as we're out there. Uh, you you appreciated it all, 
And um, the most telling sign is when somebody wants to have a good hunt, and if we get one, we get one. If we don't, we tried our best, and it's still a good hunt. And oh, I believe you, you believe that. Absolutely. It's all, you know, part of the chase. The chase is the real deal, and and if you kill one, then that's just a bonus. Yeah, sugar on top. Yeah, you're missing the point if you're not enjoying the ride uh, as you go. Absolutely. So back to ducks. What species of ducks are you hunting every uh, season? We hunt majority puddle ducks, your mallards, your teal, blue wing, green wing, um, shoveler, uh, pintail, gadwall, you know, all your puddle ducks. That's, that's you got wood ducks too, you said. A lot of wood ducks. We have a lot of wood ducks that raise locally, and then they're all through the uh, flyway, you know, they migrate through. Uh, we will kill some random divers. Um, just depends. Most of the time when we do that, it's a strong front coming through. Is it like a golden eye gold, or meganser? Yeah, or a redhead or a canvasback okay. or a bluebill. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but a, a diver duck is a duck that's going to dive under the surface of the water and eat fish and other aquatic life underwater. And a puddle duck is one that lives and feeds on the surface of the water and is eating freshwater shrimp or whatever they're feeding on. They don't dive down, and they're not they're not fish eaters. That that's right. And uh, I mean a mallard, they're like a they're all like a chicken, you know. They would eat anything you threw out there. They could <laughs> swallow it, they eat it. But most of the time it's you know, your puddle ducks feeding in water twelve to eighteen inches deep at the deepest probably. And a diver, you know, I think it's been um I think it was a canvas back that was caught in a fisherman's net like a hundred foot deep. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So they're super hungry yeah they can do some wild things <laughs> but uh from a cultural kind of popularity contest puddle ducks are what duck hunters want to hunt what the mallard is king and they and they taste better too i mean the fish eating those diver ducks are not as as good as table fare most of the time that's kind of the general thought yep that's correct they are a little darker meat for the most of the time but you know the canvas back during the market gunning days. He he was king, really. And that was the uh, supposed to be the most you know delicious duck, and brought well, doesn't the that most throw food. everything out the window? It it does to a certain point, but um, that's why they were so heavily shot during the market gunning days and almost shot to extinction. So there's just not near as many you know out there in the flyways i know the mallards king and that's like the you know them stacking up getting a limit of green heads is the crown jewel of what y'all do but what what species excites you or what uh what would you be surprised by or excited by in your home dirt there well i like shooting them all naturally you know you have some guys come through camp that are like if they don't kill their limited mallards then it wasn't you know Mm. their you know their prize hunt claim to be mallard purist and that's all they want to shoot which Mm. is fine but if i had my pick of ducks that i like to shoot it would probably be green wing teal and why is that they're you know fast flyers and they might be in a five pack or they might be in a group of a thousand Hmm. and decoys super good and uh, just fun to shoot 
you think it's a little more challenge it's a faster smaller duck yeah i don't know some they just work the decoys so much different okay They're fast and say if it's a 50 pack you can be looking out the blind watching them come in and as they're coming to you they're wide and then in a ball and then wide and then in a ball and oh, then wow. right when they come into the decoys they might be all knotted up into a ball and when you four guys cut into them you might knock out you know 15 ducks <laughs> and it, it's it's just a lot of fun in my opinion yeah i, I like shooting them uh some other waterfowl or bird species that you've hunted you, you told me once you went on a crane hunt you didn't you ended up you did get a crane that's right the old ribeye that's right i was supposed to go on a crane hunt had a whole group of guys that was going with me and the weather turned and got super cold and everything froze and the outfitter was um gracious enough to tell them to tell us that they'd all left his area you know he didn't have it ain't happening yeah that's right he said i don't want to disappoint you guys don't want to take your money whatever the case may be but we just don't have any birds so I was already in the area anyway and duck hunted with one of my friends and had my crane permit and just happened to have one crane come in with a group of mallards and that's the only crane I've killed in my life. But it was still a good time. Yeah. They're a fascinating prehistoric bird that's super delicious. Every time you hear one, you know, we heard them. We were, oh, yeah. we were up on the mountain and we heard them yeah. out in the ag below. Every time you hear one, it's like damn Jurassic Park out there they're definitely identifiable by their sound for sure and it carries you know for miles you can hear them and they're huge migrators too correct yeah and when we have a bad storm come through we will actually have some come through my neighborhood but it's well it's not very often maybe once or twice a year i might see a little five pack or something come floating through yeah i don't think we got within a mile of sand hills this last week without you pointing them out yeah. they're very common here you know yeah they catch my attention because i'm always thinking about shooting them i guess <laughs> so tell me about goose hunting and how that differentiates from your duck hunting and that's a that's a later season thing yeah we you know in the 80s there was a lot of canada geese that uh, migrated into my area in southern illinois and that was you know a big deal and uh, the flyway changed i feel like they were terribly over hunted in southern illinois mm. and so much hunting pressure i believe changed the flyway they just quit coming and uh, it's not that they don't migrate anymore i think that they just went farther into the central flyway to escape a lot of the heavy pressure pressure so now since they've been gone uh, in our area, we have a tremendous amount of snow geese and uh, speckle belly or white fronts, whatever you want to call them. Uh, they're getting more and more popular every year in our flyway. And so what is it that I think a speckle belly is like pretty similar to a Canadian. Is that fair to say? Are they smaller? They're a little bit smaller and they're uh, predominantly a brown color and their uh, chest is a light, lighter beige color with black spots or mm -hmm. bars however you want to uh, describe it and they're very vocal and they respond very well to a call and they're super fun to hunt there might be you know you might shoot a pair or a five pack or you might have 2500 in a wad they'll migrate in huge numbers yeah hmm. a lot of times that's what i think of uh snow geese as yeah 
they're very very more probably more similar in habit to a snow goose than they are a canada okay but um they just respond a lot better than a snow goose a snow goose can be here a stubborn bird yeah humble you a lot huh. I've, I've never hunted snow geese uh but i have heard i've laid in tent in my tent at night and heard them migrating over me before and they've got a a unique kind of whistle to them or i don't know how to describe the noise but they traveled i've never seen so many birds migrating at once as i have sometimes some snow geese flocks yeah and they get huge flocks in my neighborhood there might be hundred thousand in a field and they might encompass you know a half a section just pretty easy and they can be kind of destructive is that why they yeah. have the super generous uh, you know you hear about uh, the conservation some, season yeah where it's like gloves off high, super down. high limits or no limits take the plug out of your shotgun get them boys and it's like what why how do they justify that why is that the reason they have become so popular or populous i guess in their own breeding grounds that the natural vegetation you know takes forever to grow in the tundra so there were so many of them they're destroying their own habitat so uh -huh. they was trying to get the numbers more in check to save the tundra if you will that's a big goose hunter slogan or is that right yeah i've never heard that yeah snow goose hunter he likes to say that but save it, the tundra yeah also to keep you know from if with any species of any animal you get overpopulated and you're going to have disease or some other you know totally you know mother nature is going to correct the ship at some point in time whether you like it or not and yeah. they created the conservation order to keep from having that so it didn't spill some kind of disease spill over into any other species of waterfowl but they first thought that it was having a good effect the first few years of the conservation order and what what is conservation order it will is that come a federal deal yeah it's a federal deal it will come in most places you know the first of february and all other species of waterfowl goes out so you, the mm. dark geese the speckle bellies or the canadas or any ducks they're all out they left or you can't hunt them you can't hunt them you can't season hunt them. is closed from then roger on. So the conservation order lets you shoot the light geese, which is snows or just a different color phase of them, a blue, you know, snows and blues. So you can shoot them. You can use electronic call, uh, no limit. My goodness. Just let them have it, you know. And do you get in on that? Is that a thing? Is that part of your spring? I do not guide for it. I've hunted it a bunch. I haven't heard you talk about it, yeah. No, it is a tremendous amount of work. And the snow goose guy. <laughs> a lot of birds to clean. Oh, my goodness. Not only that, but you're sitting, you know, maybe two or three hundred decoys, or you might be sitting two or three thousand decoys. Oh, man. A day. That's a lot of work. And if you want to do it right, you're doing it every day. You're changing fields every day. Scouting and traveling. Scouting and, and running. And I feel like uh, that it, there's a lot of parallels to like storm chasers. <laughs> yeah. It's like exactly guys that right. drive around crazy trying to find tornadoes and stuff to guys probably that. Drive around like crazy, chasing migrating geese. That's right, they do, and they put in a lot, a lot of hours for a snow goose hunter, and that's. I enjoy it. I like to do it, but I'm not gonna. Yeah. Guide for it, you know. Go maybe two or three times a year, and just have a buddy hunt, and 
we kill some geese great if not and you know we laugh about it so yeah for sure i think waterfowl is interesting like the most interesting thing about it uh is the collaborative management that it takes to kind of have what you know your call we live in the the good old days right now the best the best of the best is happening right now and it's state and local management it's federal management and then it's international management and i'm just talking about one continent that's right that's right and it takes all that to to keep producing i feel like the quality of waterfowl hunting that we have now if there's a link in the chain dropped somewhere then you know it could turn around and go the other way i feel like a lot faster than what we've been building Hmm. but everybody is in the waterfowl world anyway is so conservation minded and habitat minded anymore that it's i think that it's producing the best waterfowl hunting you know in in history that's great what's your season ahead look like i think besides, besides when you're going home tomorrow you're going to climb in a combine for a couple months yeah yeah <laughs> you know playtime's over it's time to go to work so i'll go home straight in the harvest uh, i think the waterfowl season is going to be great now there, you know, there was a lot of moisture in your world out here in, oh, the, in the Dakotas and most places in Canada, you know, where all these ducks are born. So water is king. When there's a lot of water, there's a lot of ducks. But is there a tipping point where if there's water everywhere, the hunting, the birds spread out more and it's not as good? It, Yeah, that can happen. And that just makes you be a more uh, savvy hunter, you know, that if you're not scouting more then you're you know you're losing out on something like that but as far as breeding uh, and raising ducks or geese either one that's what you want you know you want a lot of water a lot of breeding habitat so they can evade the ground nesters and the you know fox the coyote or whatever as long hmm. as they have places to scatter out and raccoons ra- ra- are terrible i gotta I, I gotta believe the raccoon is probably like the number you know public enemy number one against wa- uh, waterfowl he has to be i know he's he in the turkey too, right? yeah. turkey world he's he's bad news but there was a lot of water in the brood i know the breeding pair number survey that they come out with in may was low but last year was a drought so the production wasn't as high so you would think you know that there's not as many breeding pairs right so that's that's logical but the difference on a wet year the brood number was up 80 percent wow so i think it's going to be a strong flight this fall with a lot of young birds so young birds decoy well and makes for great hunts what's the lifespan of a duck you know that's I know they can a mallard can be over twenty years old. They get have, out. They have band recoveries of twenty year old mallards. I would have not guessed that. But I would, ha- and I'm no biologist. But if I'm just throwing a number out and guessing, I would say that they would do very well to live to be ten, because I know a lot That's of that's still as long. I would have thought it's like a three four year program. I thought it think would be closer to like rabbits than it would be elk yeah or it's like uh, at the ebb and flow a canada the goose i think's 30 something years old for out. a band recovery and snow goose i think the average age in the snow goose population is 11 years old 
harvested the average snow goose shot is 11 years old 11 years old that is i would have not guessed that and they are super smart and they will flat humble you very easily <laughs> yeah right when you think you have them guys figured out they pull up stakes no, and they leave yeah. yeah i love it keeps you on your toes for sure makes hunting uh makes hunting hunting and we're out there we're out there to learn something and experience new things every time we go well i hope you have a good season man it's yeah. been an absolute pleasure elk hunting with you i'm glad uh the freezer will be full of some elk meat for you hopefully you share that with some of your some of your uh, guests at the lodge this winter if you don't i wouldn't blame you <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, I'm looking forward to the season, and thanks for having me and yes, guiding sir. me this week. You've done a terrific job. I appreciate that. It's always fun to have a knowledgeable guide, but just somebody that likes to have fun too. And yep, I I'll let the cat out of the bag. I did not make a good shot on my elk, and I was ready to hang myself. <laughs> you was the one that talked me off the from the rope being tied around my neck and kept me level headed and and stayed positive and got it you got to found my elk we sure did just because of that so you got to keep a level head and uh make some educated decisions and work with the information and the situation at hand and we we stayed the course and we did we recovered your elk in a very efficient uh amount of time and he's headed to missouri that's right didn't we lost very little of the meat so we got the we lost some neck meat. We picked it up at the butcher today, and he yeah. said, "Man, he's better than I thought." It's yeah. going to be uh, from the story you told me that uh, you didn't recover him right away, and uh, but the salvage was high, and we lost some neck meat, which is very typical. Um, but that was about it. Yeah, we we done a good job on that part and got lucky and like you said i'm gonna eat every bit of it other than you you might get lucky because i can't get it all in my luggage to fly home with i don't know if you noticed <laughs> but the three chest freezers in my garage are pretty dang full already but it's a lot of you know there's beaver carcasses and and uh capes deer capes and stuff. <laughs> the stuff that takes up room out there that ain't quite as delicious as elk meat so i hope i hope a little bit of it does get left behind all right, Mr. Shane, till the next hunt. Thank you so much, sir. Yes, thank you.